Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. An obvious point of connection between modern forms of the Christian imagination and politics comes in the form of prophecy and the way a number of high-profile and not-so-high-profile self-styled prophets have been using their platforms and their speaking voice and their gifts to use their prophecy to talk about politics. Famously, there is no shortage of right-wing American Republican prophets who predicted a Trump win, and then there is no shortage of American right-wing Republican prophets who are now hastily trying to figure out what to do in the face of a Trump loss, including public apologies for their false prophecies, taking back their public apologies for their false prophecies, or doubling down on what they said and claiming that it's true in some way that we don't quite understand. It's true in the spiritual realm or some sort of nonsense like that. And then what you see on the other side, I suppose, would be people who then are talking about false prophets. So it's a very easy thing to say, you predicted something wrong, so you are a false prophet. What I would like to do with this session is to start to help us reimagine what is going on with prophecy and what a true prophet or a false prophet is. Because I don't think that a false prophet is a prophet that gets his predictions wrong. That's not where the false prophecy lies. The people who are giving you what your itching ears want to hear, they are the false prophets. Put it this way, you could be 100% in all your predictions and forthtellings and pronouncements from the front and still be a false prophet if you consistently use your voice and your platform to prop up people in power, to make the centers of power comfortable, and to increase the oppression and injustice in the land. That is what makes you a false prophet. False prophets are people who speak into the rooms where their friends are and only tell them what their friends already want to hear. False prophets are those who go to people and places of power and use their voice to reinforce the people in their places of power. This is where the false prophets show up in the Old Testament especially. The false prophets are the ones, the court prophets of the kings, who consistently speak to kings telling them how great they are and predicting victories for their side. The false prophets are the ones who are swayed by money or popular peer pressure to give the sorts of words that the people around them already believe and want to hear. This is what makes you false. Likewise, we have examples of prophetic utterances from people who get it wrong. I'm thinking of Agabus in the book of Acts, who makes a prophecy about Paul coming to a bad end in Jerusalem. It doesn't happen, and yet Agabus is not told to be a false prophet. You can get it wrong and be a true prophet. You can get it right and be a false one. I want to look at why this is the case in this episode. 
Now, I'm sure that this is true for all sides of the political spectrum. I'm sure that there are people who are really into radical lefty socialist politics who give radical lefty socialist prophecies. I'm sure that that is true. I have to say, in my experience, I've not been around those types of people. It's very rare in charismatic, prophetic type circles to find radical lefty socialists for reasons which we have been talking about over the last 25 episodes. So I'm not taking an absolute pot shot just at the right wingers here. But let's be honest, it's right wingers who tend to be speaking up the loudest about their prophecies. And notice how, what a mystery of the ages it is, that right wing Republicans tend to have right wing Republican prophecies. Nationalist Brits who can't wait for Brexit to happen, tend to have nationalist Brexit-related prophecies. People who vote Tory tend to have Tory prophecies. It happens all the time. And like I said, I'm sure it does happen on the other side, and I'm sure if I moved in different circles, I would start to notice that trend as well. So I'm not making an absolute blanket statement about conservatives here. But let's just be realistic. There was not a whole lot of prominent prophets predicting a Biden win. There was not a whole lot of charismatic prophets predicting that Trump would lose. Why is that? And I think what we're seeing is this idea that itching ears are hearing what itching ears want to hear. And I'm not saying that these charismatic prophets who are predicting Trump's win and doubling down on a Trump victory, are intentionally trying to manipulate or deceive. I'm not saying that the charismatic prophets who love Britons leaving the the European Union and are prophesying all sorts of glorious futures for Britain are deliberately trying to manipulate their crowd. But what is happening is the phenomenon known as confirmation bias. That we naturally feel things to be true that coincide with what we're told must be the case or should be the case in the cultures in which we're moving. And this does happen all the time. And what we find in these prophetic cultures is people who are feeling very strongly something about the way the world should be and mistaking their feeling for a word from the Lord. And I think they're doing it in all honesty with themselves. But I don't think they are true prophets as a result. This is because of the biblical tradition of prophecy as speaking truth to power. In the Hebrew scriptures, the prophet was not just the person who could tell the future. In fact, telling the future was rather looked down upon and seen as sorcery. The prophet has a political role, and that role is always as a counterweight or a counterbalance to the places of power and self-sufficiency. Think of King David. Think of the priests, the high priests. Think of the people who are in these positions of power and authority, who have perhaps grown complacent in their confirmation bias. They have adopted or believed in their own 
sufficiency and resources and power. They are the heads of institutions which are perpetuating injustice. And along comes a prophet. And that prophet speaks into these places of power and says, you think that you've got it all sorted. You think that you are working as an agent of God's will on the earth. You think that you are self-sufficient or that your temples or your courts or your armies are going to do everything for you that you want them to do. But I say to you, the Lord is not happy. You have let the widow and the foreigner go hungry. You have acted as if you were uncreated and you've forgotten your creator. You've lost your first love. You're all involved with sacrifices and the temple apparatus. But I tell you, I hate your sacrifices. Your worship is like ashes on your mouth. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let justice roll on like a raging river. These are the kinds of words that the prophet has in the Old Testament. And the prophet was the figure that comes from the outside into courts and temples and places of power and reminds those people and places why they're there, what purpose they serve, and what they're really supposed to be doing with their life. They are not speaking into situations where people are cheering for them. If you're in a church or in some environment and somebody stands up and gives a prophecy and everyone applauds or nods approvingly, that's a pretty big clue that you're in the presence of a false prophet. But if you're in a situation where somebody stands up and says, I think I have a word from the Lord. And it makes the oppressed feel comfortable and the comfortable feel oppressed. Well, this is the beginning of what it might be to be in the presence of true prophecy. Prophecy in the Hebrew tradition speaks into places or it breaks into confirmed bias, self-sufficiency, institutionalized injustice. It doesn't affirm these things. It doesn't build on them. It doesn't encourage them. Prophecy in the Old Testament always assumes a sociopolitical system that has gone wrong. It always assumes that something has lost its way. A group of people or a system that has grown complacent or grown fat on its own success. And along comes the prophet. This is the clue that you're in the realm of good prophecy or true prophecy. And it doesn't have to do with predicting or forthtelling. And in fact, the forthtelling aspect of prophecy, which we might think of as like, woe to you or doom has come upon your house and those kinds of things. These aren't so much predictions of the future. They are descriptions of what happens when human beings don't act the way that human beings are supposed to act. This is a description of what happens when you choose the broad way that leads to destruction and not the narrow way that leads to life, right? I think of the Samuel who prophesies to the people. So think of the story of the kingship. Again, prophecy and politics are always connected. And we think of how the people of Israel want to have a king like other nations. 
And so they go to Samuel, who is their prophet, and they say, we want to have a king because we want to be like other nations. And Samuel says, okay, you want to have a king. Well, this king is going to tax you. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your women and put them into service. He's going to take your sons and put them into the army. He's going to always be at war with other kings. He's going to build for himself positions of power and authority that will turn against you. But if you want to have a king to be like other nations, you can have it. And along comes King Saul, and lo and behold, it sets into motion exactly the things that Samuel prophesied. But was Samuel predicting the future? Is that what makes him a true prophet? No. He's a true prophet because he's speaking into the Israelites who wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to have the power and the prestige and the military might that comes with being a kingly, war-making type nation. And Samuel speaks into that, and he does not give the itching ears what they want to hear. And he says, you want this, you're going to get it, and it's not going to be good. You're not going to be happy. And lo and behold, they weren't. And what is more, from then on, prophets are always assuming the role of speaking into or against the kings. And we think of Nathaniel and David, for example. Now, the Old Testament is not one document speaking with one voice. It's a collection of many different voices and many different documents spanning thousands of years of time. It is a conversation that the people of God are having with each other about each other. And one of the main strands or one of the main conversations happening in the Hebrew scriptures is this conversation between the prophets on one side and the priests and kings on the other. And the prophets are one strand of the Old Testament, which is always speaking into the places of priestly or kingly power. And it's always reminding them or recalling them to their first love or rebuking them. And it's significant that in the New Testament, which is essentially a series of footnotes on the Old Testament, every single page of the New Testament will quote or allude to or draw from material in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus is very much a character who is being portrayed in a prophetic mold. And Jesus quotes the Hebrew Scriptures all the time. And he frames his ministry in light of the Hebrew scriptures all the time. And one of the things you have to know about Jesus is that every time he does quote the Hebrew scriptures or the things that he affirms in what we would now call the Old Testament, it's always the prophetic strand that he affirms. The conversation that Jesus takes a part of is the prophetic one. He offers his take on that age-old conflict between prophets and priests and kings, and he always sides with the prophets. Jesus' entire life is one that fits the prophet mold. He stays away from centers of power, deliberately. 
he goes into the wilderness to begin his ministry and he accepts John the Baptist's baptism. John the Baptist was also a wilderness prophet speaking against or into places of power from the outside. Jesus adopts and identifies himself with that ministry. He then wanders around the Judean Galilean countryside. He only goes to Jerusalem at key moments and at those times he's only going to Jerusalem in order to make public statements about power. Famously he will enter Jerusalem at the height of Passover in order to cleanse the temple whereas everyone in the crowd is expecting Jesus to storm the temple and kick out the foreigners. Jesus storms the temple and says this house should be a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus doesn't enter the centers of power for purposes of gathering power for himself and controlling Jerusalem or the temple. He enters these contested spaces for the purpose of bringing another voice into the common culture, into the assumed and settled places, into the self-sufficiency uh, tribalistic or nationalistic groups who think that they are there for the purpose of gathering and hoarding their own resources to perpetuate their own institutions. And Jesus takes the prophetic approach. You think you are self-sufficient. You think you are here to further your own aims. But I tell you, you have forgotten the cause of the oppressed. You are letting the foreigner and the widow go hungry. Let justice roll, right? And of course, the iconic moment, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah that the bonds will be broken, the oppressed will be set free, the captives will be loosed. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is aligning himself with the prophetic voice and the prophet character. And he lives also the prophet's reward, which is that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, which is that a prophet will be despised and rejected. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, and then also in the book of Acts, spends a lot of time detailing Jesus as a prophet like Moses, one like Moses. And Moses is considered to be a prophet in the Luke-Acts narrative because Moses is the one bringing God's word to a group of people who have been doing it themselves or going it their own way. And he's always speaking this, providing God's law into this situation. And then Moses is also rejected by his own people. And Luke wants us to remember that aspect of Moses, how he's always being grumbled against or he's always being fought against by his own people. That's what it means that Jesus is one like the prophet Moses. Of course, Moses himself gives way to the whole priestly, kingly tradition. So the, the sorts of activities that Moses is associated with, the law, sacrifice, purity, ethnic, religious purity, these are the things that themselves need to be redeemed by the prophetic voice as well. So it's like an endless cycle of establishment of institution and then prophetic voice renewing that institution or coming into it and again jesus is that voice he is that person in the new testament 
And one of the things that Jesus is most prophetic about is his refusal to follow the patterns of the, the way of the world that is expected of him. He and his followers do not act the way that you should act if your goal was to preserve and prolong the heritage that you were born into or the institutions that you are responsible for. So Jesus and his movement is a whole prophetic act against establishment and institutionalization of common sense and common morality. He's also very much in his uh, stand against violence or the way that he rules, which is a refusal to beat the bullies by being an even bigger bully, his refusal to fight evil with evil. This itself is part of the prophetic act where Jesus is showing himself to be a king unlike all the other kings. If we remember that Israel's ground zero sin, as it were, was they wanted to have a king so they could be like other nations. And that sets in motion the whole corruption, the whole beginning and the institutionalization of rebellion. Organized rebellion against the way of the Lord comes when you want to be a nation like other nations. So the story of the New Testament eventually ends up with the redemption of the nations. It ends, as we've mentioned in other episodes, with the book of Revelation, where the fate of the nations is a big deal. And Jesus is seen to be the ruler of the nations. He is a king. In the Gospels, of course, he's called King Jesus all the time. Jesus the Messiah means Jesus God's anointed one, which is another way of saying God's king. And the kingship element really comes to the fore in the book of Revelation, where we see all of the enemies ranged against King Jesus. And the enemies are all portrayed as nations and empires and rulers of empires. So rival kings. So the rivalry here is between the kingship of Jesus and the kingship of the men or the kingship of the world, which, by the way, is under thrall to the prince of darkness or to Satan. So it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of Satan, which are associated with the rule of men. So even Jesus the king is in fact a prophetic alternative to the forms of life and inherited ways uh, of being that the world naturally assumes is what one must do to uh, be in power. And Jesus's approach to these things is itself seen as being prophetic. Now, if you spend any time in charismatic circles at all, it won't be long before somebody says to you, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which comes from Revelation 19, verse 10. And this is often trotted out. This is a verse, a favorite verse amongst charismatics who love the prophetic. And they usually link it. It's always linked to testimony of Jesus. So if we tell the story of what Jesus did for us, that is where prophecy is. And they are linking it to where a little bit like if you can say it, then it will happen. If you can articulate it and put your story out into the world, then by saying it, you will start to shape reality. That by sharing your testimony of what Jesus did for you, or what he gave you, or what money you got, or what new car you got, then that will be the spirit of prophecy. 
and I often hear this verse in the circles that I've been in, they are directly linking it to things like, I prayed for a car and I got a car. So I'm going to share this testimony to make it true for you as well. Or I prayed for healing and I got healing. So I'm going to share this testimony. And this is the spirit of prophecy. So it's this idea that what you put out into the world is what you will receive. And this is called, according to these circles, the testimony of Jesus. But of course, this is not what's going on. People who talk about Revelation 19 verse 10 pay no attention to the rest of the book of Revelation or indeed to any of the things that might actually count as the testimony of Jesus. Let's start at Revelation chapter 19 and see what happens if we read it the way that it was actually written. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, heaven being, remember, the place where God's reign is unopposed. I heard a great multitude in the place where God's reign is unopposed saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor belong and power belong to the Lord our God. So rule and honor and uh, right worship belong and power belong to the Lord. For true and righteous are his judgments as opposed to the judgments of man, which are false and evil, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. This is the allusion to Babylon as the prostitute. And Babylon, of course, is the great stand-in for any organized empire which sets itself up against the reign of God. So we have the kingdom of God, or heaven, where God's reign is unopposed, and the kingdoms of man, which are organized rebellion against the way of God, who the book of Revelation describes as the beast, or the great harlot, who corrupts the earth with her fornication. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, this fornication is directly linked not only to sexual practices, but actually very much so to market practices, trading, buying, selling, hoarding up of resources. It's related to the waging of war and uh, violent expansion of borders. The book of Revelation calls this fornication of the beast. He has judged this, this corruption, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. His servant, of course, his servants, so Jesus and his followers, his prophets. That the harlot or the beast, the empires, Rome and all the other organized empires of man, the nations of man, kill the Lord's servants. And again, he says, again, they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever. She's come to a bad end. The, the, the Babylon is going to do what Babylon does and it will be destroyed. It will get what it wants. It gets what it wants. And the smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, the ones who are living in the throne room of heaven where God's reign is unopposed, they fall down and worship God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God all-powerful reigns. Notice the politics here. 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The Lamb is Jesus, whose sacrifice takes away the sin of the world or who has sacrificed for our sins, our organized sins, put him on the cross, our organized rebellion. We killed the Lamb and his wife is the church. The bride of Christ is the followers, the people of the Lord, the people who follow Jesus's voice. And to her, into the, this, the church of believers, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Righteous acts, not private belief. How the saints do things, what they do in this world, is the fine linen of the church. Then he said to me, Right, blessed, or happy, or uh, comforted are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are married to the Lamb of God. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, So John here is worshiping the messenger, and he's told, No. And he said to me, See that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The way that Jesus lives and acts and what he does and how he reigns as a lamb who was slain, that is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus, the, the life and words of Jesus is what it means to be prophetic. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. See, heaven, when heaven's opened, this is... This is the veil between where God's reign is unopposed and the rest of the world becoming thin and opening up. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So now the king is going to make war. Huh. I wonder if he's going to make war the way the kings of the world make war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. Every crown is a symbol of authority. The crown is a symbol of sovereignty and authority. You will remember at the end of the book of Revelation, all the rulers of the nations will cast their crowns at the feet of King Jesus. They will give up their authority and their sovereignty, and that indeed will be the saving of them. And Jesus here has many crowns on his head, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself, because in this world, to know someone's name was to know their destiny. And Jesus has a name that only he knows. He is under command of no one. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Where do you think the blood came from? Jesus the King is leading a war at the front of which he is, he is marching ahead of all of his soldiers. And he is dipped with the blood of himself. It is not the blood of his enemies. The lamb that was slain is leading an army dipped in his own blood, not the blood of his enemies. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And on he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The 
the kingship of Jesus, of, uh, he defeats the nations through the sword of his mouth. He's the word of God. The word of God is the word of creation. It's the word of recreating the world around him. It's the word of putting order out of chaos. He defeats enemies with his own blood. He leads soldiers who are martyrs. And it's his sharp sword which strikes the nations. His prophetic way, the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. The way Jesus is, what he says, out of his mouth comes the sharp sword that will strike the nations. The word of God speaking truth to power. And what happens when Jesus strikes the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron? And I have mentioned this before in previous teachings. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, earlier on actually, Jesus will say to the one who overcomes, I will give them the rod. Uh, and with this rod of iron, they will rule the nations. And then in the very next verse, he says, and you will smash them like pottery. And here we have here in verse uh, 15, Revelation nineteen fifteen. again, out of his mouth, comes the sword that will strike the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is not teaching of nationalism and patriotism. This is an expectation, an imagination, a dreaming of the time when nations will be dissolved. They will be struck low, not built up. But the, the striking them down, the removing of their sovereignty, the removing of their grasping for meager resources against each other, that itself is their healing when they are rightly ruled. And it's experienced as the wrath of God, the, the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God against the nations, in a way, is when they get what they want. They scratch and fight and kick. They get what they want and it's experienced as the wrath of God. And this form of organization and form of power and using power the sorts of world that we know right now with endless competition with scrabbling over what we think are meager resources which are in fact not meager resources at all this uh, turn to to lethal violence at the very first instance the dropping of bombs the sending of troops the stand your ground and blow away your enemies all of this stuff is the smoke that is rising to heaven. This is Babylon eating itself. This is organized rebellion collapsing in on itself. It is broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Because on me is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then later on in the New Testament, you get the prophets show up a lot or prophetic things and you have paul for example saying what about prophecy you must all prophecy must be for the building and encouragement of the people or people will come with a word and let them share a word and do not treat prophecy with contempt there's those kinds of things what is the relationship here what is political about that and there is an issue here that we have because the old testament prophecies prophetic tradition and the prophetic tradition of the book of Revelation do not seem to match very well 
with the practice that we see in the early church and then the practice that you see amongst uh, charismatic type Christians who practice prophecy, which usually means I have a word for you. And they come to you and they say, I was praying for you and I had this word or I feel like I, I saw this image or I have this to remind you of. But even this kind of prophecy, when you have a word for someone, what you are doing is you are bringing God's word into a situation. And usually what you are bringing the situation to heal, usually you are speaking into something, somebody's life where they are perhaps partnering with the lie. Perhaps they are believing a narrative that has been told to them and about them or that they have themselves been telling themselves. Perhaps you are speaking into an addiction that has trapped and bonded somebody or forms of life or habits of thought that they can't break out of. It's a stronghold in your heart or your mind or your soul when you are trapped or when you have built up through the hardness of your heart forms of life or habits that you refuse to let go of. You are bound by a stronghold when you believe the lie that you are worthless or that you have nothing to give or that you'll always get it wrong or that you're a sinner and will never be forgiven or any other countless lie that people tell themselves about themselves so that it warps and twists their personality. The prophetic word, the voice of the Lord, comes into that. It breaks in and it says, you think that you're all sorted. You think your story is over. You think that all you have is what you are going to provide for yourself. You think that the words that have been spoken over your life are true and done and dusted. But I tell you, you are important. You are loved. There is a purpose for you. There is a thing for you to do. There are ways for you to be. There are places for you to go. Whatever it is that the prophetic word will be, will often be something that is going to be breaking into that stronghold. And the other language I would use for that is the principality. Any unseen force which influences our life, which more often than not actually is a human institution or born of human practice any pattern or form of life which influences our life is a principality and the prophetic word against or into these principalities is always to break them down it's always to go back to first principles it's always to put a voice to what has been vo voiceless it's always to put a face to what has been faceless the prophetic function even the prophetic word of encouragement and building up is a word of release of the bondage. It's a word that brings captives out into the open. It's a word that gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And it's in this way, I think, that we could see that prophecy practiced as a way of personally encouraging and building up the fellow believers is also a prophetic act of politics because you are speaking into a new order of life. You are saying this is the old order of life that you are living. There is a new way. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I look forward to continuing this series of Followers of the Way in the next episode.
Well, we've just had a look or a listen to prophecy and the connection between Old Testament, New Testament, modern, charismatic, political, all the different forms of prophecy. Uh, and before I talk to my friends, Chris and Sean, I just want to have a little shout out to a listener. Listener Naomi, thank you for writing to me and asking me what is the connection between Old Testament prophets and the New Testament uh, self-styled prophets that we see today. And that question is what set me off to think about all this kind of stuff and to put it into my uh, my talk. So thank you to the listener, which is a reminder to me that you should listen. If you are a listener, you should definitely ask some questions. Send them in, info at tenttheology.com and we will do our best to respond to them. And if you also join the Patreon account, there's a lot of listeners asking questions and getting answers in the Patreon as well. So thank you, Naomi, for reminding me about profits. And also thank you for reminding me to put the shout out to anyone who has questions. Do send them in. We absolutely love responding to them. Chris, what do you think about the connection between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophecy and modern day charismatics? Do you have modern day charismatic prophets swishing about your Episcopalian church? <laughs> uh, no, we, we don't. Uh, it's not a thing for us. But, but when you immediately started talking about this subject, my ears just perked up because like this, 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 this talk that you gave is, is for my demographic, you know? Okay. Uh, because I grew up in that and, I, and right. I, I haven't really been in that world, but I stand in the middle of these types of things. I, I want to take words from the Lord very seriously. Like, I don't want to play around with that stuff. Okay. So there's a, for me, there's a, there's a kind of, I want to approach it with a kind of reverence, right? So at the same time, it's, it's so interesting how you mentioned confirmation bias. It's absolutely true. I, like I, I, when, when the, the, the United States election happened, I was just somewhat astounded seeing people, my more conservative church friends that I don't really see anymore, but they're still doing their thing, mm -hmm. posting all of these online YouTube prophets. Right. And it was it was overwhelming. I was just like, who are these people? Right. So so I I have my own confirmation bias, which is this is all hooey. I can't I can't believe that anybody's taking any of this seriously. Right. I, I just couldn't believe it. As somebody who wants to take the Holy Spirit and take the movement of God seriously, I have a little bit of a check and I go, oh, so how, how can my own confirmation bias cloud my own eyes? <laughs> um, so I, I, there's something in me in, in my own upbringing, the way that I was raised in my faith where I want to be careful. I want to be, you, you know, the, the whole, you talked about it in your Mark series, like the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit and all that. And what does that mean? And, and I don't want, I don't want to be that guy. Right. Like that's like, I have that Sunday school lesson in my head <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. But I wanted to move a bit beyond just confirmation. Like I want to, I want to think about a, a prophet, not as somebody who gets it right or wrong. All our conversation is all about confirmation bias and are they getting it right? And for me, I feel like confirmation bias is more to do with, is your little heart going pitter patter? Like, is it, are you getting yeah. what you feel you want? And that's, that's more dangerous to me than guys actually right or not. I mean, there's a 50, 50 chance Trump could have become elected. Oh, by the way, we should probably say to our listeners that it is as we as we record <laughs> it's the 4th of january so we don't know exactly what's going to happen uh, in the next couple of weeks we certainly are um aware that biden has has won the election in terms of all the 
the vote, but that the Trump team is is very much contesting it. The, the, my, my thing is like, you could stand up as a Christian prophet and go, Trump's going to win. And you have a 50-50 chance of being right. Like that's, who cares? It's the fact that you stood up in a group of people that really want Trump to win and you say Trump's going to win and they all cheer for you and then buy your books yeah. at the back. That's why you're a false prophet. It's not whether you were yeah. right or wrong about Trump. And that's, that's what I want. To, I wish we thought more about that kind of stuff. And so I actually, I did think a little bit about that and I am not a, a pro Biden person, but I, I really believe in my heart of hearts that were their prophets and I hadn't heard, I have heard zero by the way, which is funny that you, the yeah. way you start out, like the reason I'm harping on this is because this is all that I'm hearing. I'm not hearing pro Biden prophets, none, but none, but I would be, I would be skeptical. I'd be like, who cares? Like, why are you prophesying about Joe Biden winning? And yeah. so getting to the heart of the message of, of speaking truth to power, I think is really, really key to me there. Like I, you don't see it in scripture. Like there's no, there's no, there's no prophecies. Like it's no. going to be this guy. It's none. Just not there. Absolutely none. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it, the false prophets are the ones that serve the court basically. Yeah, the court of power. They're the ones who are false prophets. And so it's like, well, it's so obvious what's going on. <laughs> it's so obvious what's going on. We now have a whole tranche of self-styled prophets that are literally serving the court of power right now. I have seen many, many friends just obsessed with it. Right. Like they can't let it go. And I see this as this it's a horrible idolatry. They can't, they can't extricate their idolatry from themselves and they don't see it. They don't see how obsessed they're almost frothing at the mouth. Like, and they're, they're waiting, they're waiting for the last shoe to drop that finally will show us that Trump will rise victorious. Right. And, uh, and I, as a, as a follower of Christ, I'm going, wow, is this what we need to be about? <laughs> is this, is this what God is calling us to? Yeah. I don't think so people. I don't think so. Okay. So what do you think it is, Chris? What, how are you a prophet? When you're a priest and you're on a Sunday morning, how, how are you being prophetic? By the way, this is a trick question because I think the answer is you are being prophetic. Do you know why? <laughs> That's what I, <laughs> you are prophetic. Do you know why? What I, what I try to do is to, to, dis, to discern as much as I can in humility, what is the word of God for my people right. this Sunday? Right. And to be faithful to the scriptures in, in that sense. So sometimes it's encouragement. Like I'm just trying to encourage yeah. the, the local, the body of Christ. But like a, a few months ago, I spoke on the Beatitudes and, and I said, if you see people grasp not making peace, then that's not where the kingdom of God is. Yeah. And so I, you know, I kind of turned the Beatitudes on their head. So it's just, it's little things like that. But since this is a trick question, what, what have you, what, what, what is the answer? Well, I just was in, I, I'm interested. You said that word local, which is very interesting because what you're doing is I don't think these prof these, we've got these, this whole industry, this apparatus we've been, we've somehow allowed to create, which is, self-style prophets on instagram or having their own youtube channels or bethel tv or whatever nonsense you have and people it gets beamed out around the world and we have these international anonymous media celebrity prophets and there's no it's not local at all it's not for the group in front of them it's for the anonymous listener all around the world kind of thing and yet the prophetic word is the word which is a timely word in season well, how the hell are you going to know what a timely word in season is if you don't even know who you're talking to? If you can't look them in the face, if you haven't met, if you haven't been with them for the week before you speak to them on the Sunday, 
you don't know what a timely word in season is for them. You don't know that they maybe are, uh, are totally drunk on feeling on despair and their church is collapsing around them and they feel utterly destitute. And so then your prophetic word is to remind them of something of an encouragement, right? Or it's to bring in something that's that the last thing they need is condemnation. And so, you know, that the timely word in season to come against the opposite spirit is to bring something of joy and peace and hope, or it might be the other way around. Maybe they're utterly drunk on the triumph of Trump almost winning, or they're utterly drunk on the, on whatever the last uh, success they've experienced. And so then your timely word in, in season might be to come in and, and say, let's be humble or let's remember the poor or let's go back to our first love or whatever that might be. Right. And, and so I thought, I think when you are, you, when you talked about being a local pastor, to me, that's very prophetic. But the other thing I was thinking of you, Chris, is that you are running a community. Uh, your part of your work is to your vocation is to administer the communion, the Eucharist. And I feel like so few people think of that as a prophetic act when actually it's one of the most politically radical things that we've ever done where we're saying, we're going to set this table and open these doors and whoever wants to come can come. We're going to have people of all different colors and races and social classes and educational backgrounds. We're all going to kneel and receive the same body. We are all one body because we all eat of one bread. We're going to do those things. We're going to remember the body and blood broken for us. Like all that act of the Eucharist is itself such a speaking of truth, God's truth into places of power or like social constructs that we've invented. And it's bringing people out of those constructs and it's saying, this is the truth now for you. And I just, I feel like that is prophetic in an Old Testament, New Testament kind of way, which is not something you would see any charismatic prophet ever do. The ones with their own TV stations and their own online courses in the prophetic none of them even practice often the eucharist let alone let alone talk about it for more than one minute without faltering i think you're a prophet even if you don't know it i, I appreciate that i I've, I've been thinking about that my own role as a prophet in the local church and and uh, and I, I do think that's really key what you said that there's an element to say that that eucharist that coming to communion is I wouldn't, maybe it's not anti-nationalist, but it's at least post-nationalist. <laughs> yeah. It's like saying we've moved right. past this now. I think maybe the key for me, my congregation is a little bit different, but maybe my culture is getting my cultural Christians. They're about 10 steps away from realizing the truth of that. <laughs> yeah, of course. And so, uh, you know, how, you know, is what's step two, maybe? Wow. This is where you also realize prophetic words are very weak. They don't convince almost anybody all these prophets getting red in the face, shouting loudly at things and thinking that the louder they shout, the more true it will be. Utter nonsense. Some of the truest prophetic words are the ones that everybody dis disregards. Nobody follows. The louder you shout, the more likely you'll end up as a remix on YouTube. Have you seen the black metal, the black metal uh, music added to Kenneth Copeland? Oh, I just love that. It's fantastic. <laughs> Sean, you're not a vicar. You're not a priest. How are you prophetic? Have you yeah. ever thought of yourself as a prophetic person? Well, well I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting place to start because I do think it requires, uh, what I loved about the, the episode was your, it was pushing the boundary of what a prophet is. I think inherently, especially in the West, uh, there's a degree of power and hierarchy that we we associate with being prophetic, right? That this mm -hmm. person's a prophet, so they're up and above board. And and we and we don't realize that we're all prophets, I think to some degree or another, that we're, we all have a prophetic voice. Well, you all could both be. That we can, we can, 
We could be, mm. and we could take externally and the one and the one we have internally. And what it made me uh, really think about was uh, the Lakota Indians have a tradition, and a lot of indigenous people have a tradition, but they specifically have one called a, a Hayoka. And a Hayoka was a person in the tribe who was who would literally do everything the opposite of everybody else. And it was it was required within the culture and the confines. Like literally, if it was in the winter, they would wear summer clothes. If people were okay. walking forwards they would walk backwards. If they were at a funeral, they would be laughing and having a good time. If they were at a wedding, they'd be sad and crying. And they did this uh, to, to live and embody this, the, the counter narratives that were going on and to okay. be this discerning voice going the other way. And so that made me think a lot about what you were trying to bring out, I think, in regards to what you hear in regards to what makes a prophet prophetic in terms right. of its, in terms of the value was, is it, is it pushing you? Is it making you be, is it creating that discomfort when everything says this is going to happen this way, and it just so happens to coincide with what's best for all of us that are saying that. And if you're the one at the very front of the line going, hey, guys, I think this is going to work this way, and, and it should, and then you, you hijack, you know, the ultimate authority around the divine or your, or your spirituality and say, oh, and by the way, it's ordained in some some way around uh, our faith and it, this is God's will. And I think there's yeah. a little bit of hangover specifically with the election in 2020 and, and President Trump uh, and, and the supporters there. If you go back to 2016, uh, if you ask how many people really thought he was going to win, I don't, even his own supporters, I don't think we're very, right. you know, I don't think we're kind of like, 50-50 may be the, the technical odds, but I don't think it was the odds that they thought right, he was right, going right. to win. Yeah, right. So there's a little bit of this hangover because there was this massive, you know, look at what happened oh my gosh, you know, especially if any of those people before were like, I think he's going to win and, and look like fools. There was, speaking of YouTube videos, there was many that showed right. that you know, all these, you know, you know, the quote unquote liberal biased, you know, media and all the Democrats, yeah. you yeah. know, Nancy Pelosi, he's never going to win. Actors laughing at him and laughing him out of his face and showing the, the breakfast dinner. And then all of a sudden, right, here comes this, right. which yeah. in, unto itself can feel and sound and looks a lot like what we would consider you know, prophecy, especially around the God, like, here's this, you know, this hero of the people, and he made it through, and he, and he, and he, and he, and he achieved victory outside of this, uh, the, the, what was expected around the norm, and so I think we have to, and that there's a hangover from that, and four years of, like, winning, per se, and then here comes this other round, and it, so it becomes very easy, I think, for people to jump up and say, well, I think he's going to win, God says he's going to win, God, God wants him to win, and it can be real easy to go after the prophets themselves, and the Copelands, and people like that, and I mean, and the ridiculousness seems almost so apparent, but I, I think the real challenge when it's easy like that, I think when we see an easy, easy victory in terms of what's not a profit, what is, let that be. But where in our own lives do we see uh, or how, can, we, can, we, can we be prophetic and push against a narrative internally? If I'm struggling with uh, being a parent, if I'm struggling with the relationships I'm having with my friends, what can I, you know, what, what is that discerning voice that, I, that may say, well, Sean, yeah, that's all true here, but you're missing this. And I've had some stuff like that recently where it's just like, and it's very uncomfortable. I don't like it per se. Have, have you ever used that kind of language in, in your spiritual life or spirituality of coming against something with the opposite spirit? Is that something that you, that means anything to you? That kind of phrase? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I would say something around just this, you know, that, that discernment, if you will, yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't call it like evil or, or something that's counter for the sake of degradation. It's more of the, I, I can, I can go down that path if I wish, but it's more of a, are, are you recognizing the pitfalls that you're creating I get a little bit sideways around the dualism around good or bad and stuff like that, as we know, is because it, it just, I think it's a very easy way to, to rate it versus. Well, sometimes there's value in the opposite spirit. Like if everybody is a bit like you just said with your, with your, the, the holy fool who does everything opposite, like 
so if everyone around you is giddy with laughter, perhaps you kind of go, Holy Spirit, is there someone who's mourning? Like, how do I mourn with those who mourn right now? Like, or if everyone around you is mourning, you're like, Holy Spirit, where is the joy that passes all understanding right now? Like, it's not saying mourning or joy is bad in itself. Right. It's saying we're all caught up and everybody seems to be caught up in one spirit right now. What is the opposite spirit right now? And it doesn't mean some sort of violent warfare. It just means Correct. maybe it's my not my job to be just swept along with whatever everyone is being swept along with right now. And I feel yeah, like I mean, that something like that, when when in Acts 2, when Peter's saying, I, I'll pour out my spirit on all people and, and everyone will prophesy. There's something there about like everybody has that ability. Yeah. yeah. And when, the, and when the, with this, with the Holy Spirit being in us, right, there's there's a conduit there and there's, and it's, it's like watching the, the victory, watching somebody, you know, celebrate a victory and then recognizing that that somebody else had to lose to make that happen and recognizing that you know, they're not, their emotions are much different. And it's not, it's not that you should feel bad for winning or that you, or, or that you have to, but there's, there's just lots of stories in those different ways. Cause it's not, and even all the people that lost doesn't mean it was bad or that it was sad. No. And there's always a story that the second place you know, comes back and gets friends. So whatever it happens to be, I think if we, if we limit ourselves to just saying. It's, you just reminded me, Sean, a lot of, I think, our work as, a, as prophets, because I think if you have the Holy Spirit, then you are a prophet. I'm just going to say that outright. You have access to be one. And I think one of our jobs as prophets is to say the story is not over. You think the story is done. You think you've lost or you think you've won, but you need to know it's not over. There's more like this is that I was the role, right? The prophets would come to the kings and priests and go, you think you're all settled. You think you've got it sorted. But we tell you, you've forgotten the cause of the oppressed or you've forgotten your first love. And I wonder whether almost that is part of it is like the story's not over. You won't think that you've lost the, the election or you think you've lost the race. And, and likewise, the story is not over when you think you've won and everything you've got, everything right. you ever wanted. The story's not over. Well, so I was listening. So I was listening today and they were talking about, it was a uh, podcast, one of the ones that um, Chris recommended to me. It's a, it's a British podcast um, uh, from the BBC and they were, it, was, it was about Bonhoeffer and they were talking about. Um, oh, was that in our uh, time? Yeah, in our time. So blessed, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And part of that was, was then, okay, but understanding that what that's really saying is you're now responsible, right? For the, yes. for the, for the management, for the caretaking, for the distribution, for all these yeah. things. And yeah. that's a different, yeah. Right. That's an that's a continuation of exploration of that. Okay. All right. Hey, we got we got the we got the earth, y'all. We got the you know, we we got this thing. Woo! It's like okay, yeah, and it's yours now. Or hey, here's a baby. Or hey, here's a, here's a job. Or hey, here's an eighteen wheeler. I mean, whatever it happens to be, you're getting this thing, and you're now responsible for it. And it's not the end of the story just because you have it. And it's the meekness, the humility, is how you manage it well. How you steward the earth, right? which is the opposite of anybody saying, I know exactly what's going on right now. Follow me. I've got exactly hundred percent the word of the Lord. Like that's so, I think this is part of what people have been so upset with some of our prophets that we know about the Chris Vallotons and whatnot. And the, the, these people who don't, who get it wrong and then uh, uh, refuse to apologize or apologize and then retract their apology. I think it's that kind of utter like lack of humility or, 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 even interest in being seen to apologize or to say i got it wrong i think that's what really is <laughs> the character of people is being shown up rather than whether they got it right or wrong it's the character which is not meek there's no meek or mildness about it at all i don't know i feel like this is such interesting time like there's a 
the the false prophets are themselves a prophetic message Mm -hmm. right like they are themselves now the catalyst for showing us you think christianity you think you've got this right but i'm going to show you up to be utter sham it's an utter sham and this is partly what happens in colossians 2 doesn't it where the powers and principalities are exposed to open shame at the cross at the humility of the cross and it's not in victory it's not in violence that that they win it's they're exposed to open shame and I feel like we're being exposed to open shame. I read this really, I'm going to have to get her on the tent, actually, really good essay, uh, a Catholic writer. And she's writing about vice, I think, W-E-I-S-S, I think. And she was writing about how, like, what's, uh, it was titled, like, what's wrong with Christianity? And she was basically like this little essay, like, why is it that Christians, the minority of, of Christians do good things? We're not saying, like, no Christians have ever done good things. But she's like, look at history and, like, the majority voice of Christendom has always been on the side of the oppressor and they've invented the oppressions. Good things have happened through Christians. Nobody's denying that, but she's like, why is it about the world would should look a lot better than it looks considering how powerful Christians are in the, in the history of the world and how many empires they've run and countries they run and presidents who claim to be Christian. Like this world should look a lot different. What's wrong with Christianity? (laughs) And I feel a little bit like that with these prophets. I'm like, yeah, I think a light is being shone on our on our culture and it's broken from top to bottom. It's like, what's wrong with us? That we can't even recognize something as simple as the meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> so I would, I would want to put a little bit of glimmer of, of hope out there that I think that the, the, the beauty of it is that despite what I would, for lack of a better word, hijacking and misappropriation and just all the things that you just said, historically speaking, if you look at it, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you coincide the, the gospel with, you know, powers and principalities taken to the utmost, which is what we, is the core of it. But despite all of those things happening for a very, very long time, it's the spirit of it, the essence of it, the ability to discern these things is still there. It's there for us to find. It's the quiet voice, I guess. I mean, this, again, this is what we've even been told, isn't it? That the, the Lord speaks in the still quiet voice, not in the storm. Be like yeast. Yeah, it's the small. It's not a lot of excitement about the yeast. (laughs) It's not. Yeast isn't getting a million followers on Instagram. Yeast doesn't have 20,000 downloads on a podcast. It's not. Well, that must be us then. We don't have 20,000 downloads or a million followers. Chris, (laughs) you're a yeast. Come on, yeast man. What are you going to say, Chris? You brought up something toward the end of your talk, which, which really tugged on my heartstrings because you brought up the kind of prophecy that I was used to growing up. And it was the type of word of the Lord that we would receive often. And it was, it was the more personalized and, and you, and, but you, and what I like what you did was interesting was you still connected it to politics, to the, to, to, to the, to the political sphere. So, so growing up in church, uh, when a word of the Lord would come, sometimes it would be to the congregation itself. So somebody would speak over the congregation okay. and it would be kind of a God is not done with you yet, yeah. people. You know, yeah. God is going to restore your hopes and dreams and those types of things. And, and so sometimes that message would then go to, to me as an individual. And, and, and so like, I like what you said because you, you spoke, well, sometimes it's about addictions. Sometimes it's about the sin that is overtaking your life that it's just you can't grow. You can't move beyond. It's about uh, the traumas of your life. Like, you know, you know somebody that's been abused or that their marriage has fallen apart. And, and so the, the prophecies that would come forth 
would be like, God's going to restore. God's going to bring you victory in your life. And so I'm curious, where are you at <laughs> with that kind of prophecy nowadays? Um, you know, seeing what you've seen in the in the church world and how it's you know shifted and and and, and they're not speaking truth to power. But then there's this more personalized where God's going to give you victory in your own life. Where, how do you feel about that? like the role of that in people's lives or the role of that in, in the church these days? Well, I really like, I, I personally sort of crave prophecy or personal prophecy. I mean, I do, I like it. I need it. I think we need it. And I've, I've seen the power, the power or the fruits in people's lives when, when a really true word is spoken to them. And it's like the word of the Lord just cuts through the shit these people are trapped in something and the word of the Lord just speaks straight into them. And, and you can see, you see the tears flow or you see their eyes light up or whatever it is, something is being spoken to them. And I've, I've been in rooms or I've had that happen to me, or I've received words for other people where that has happened. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's really valuable. I, I don't want to just get rid of that completely. I've also been in rooms, however, like you mentioned, you said you, you yourself, you said like, Oh, this, this idea that God's going to bring victory to your life or whatever where some of those phrases, I think what's happened is there was a time when somebody was utterly depressed and they received a prophetic word about God's going to bring victory in your life. And the, the, the light shone into the darkness and the eyes started to water and it was a really true word. And then the next day, that person really wants to have a prophetic word for somebody else. And they go, oh, I know. The one that worked on me was God's going to have victory in your life. And so you use that on other people. And I feel like we've we perpetuate these things. So I'm not saying that every time somebody says God's going to have victory in your life, that's a false prophecy. But that kind of prophecy is now so commonplace. If you move in charismatic circles, it seems so obvious to me that what's happening is they're just parroting back a word that did work for somebody at one time. And it's just kind of being used again and again and again. And so I don't want to say all words of triumph and victory are bad. I do want to say that how do we get back to the place where we have a really soft heart and we are actually waiting expectant that the Holy Spirit will speak to us today. Today, do not harden your hearts. Today, uh, meet God, says Hebrews, right? Well, you know this, you have to do this in your Anglican liturgy. Don't harden your hearts, but meet God uh, in the wilderness. And so there's this idea of like um, trying to always hear the Holy Spirit for the moment rather than for what he said in the past and then repeat it over and over again. Mm. So I like it. I mean, we have, so it was my birthday yesterday and uh, you, you will remember friend of the show, Galibe Omanaka and Galibe phoned me up and he left a voice message on my phone and he had a prophetic word for me. He had a word and he'd been praying for me. And he said, I feel like the Lord wants you to know this. And he, he's, and I love that. That's really valuable. Right. Um, and that's not Galibe playing to the crowd and it's not Galibe selling his books at the back. That's just a, a man who was genuinely asking the Holy spirit. Is there something Stephen needs to know? And he phoned me up and told me. And that was my birthday gift. <laughs> so I really value that. I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm denigrating that. But, but I do see that, that kind of thing. So like the word that Glebe gives me was the kind of thing that I could see that as a social political thing, because what he's doing is he's speaking. I'm believing a whole set of uh, lies about myself and my job or my vocation or whatever it was that the world has told me and 
Galibe's word is cutting through all that and saying, no, you see yourself as X, but I want to tell you why. And that to me is also a socio-political act, even though it's a word from one person to another. So that's what we should do for each other, I think. I think we should have, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have prophetic words and then we'll beam the ether. How about that? <laughs> I, wish, I wish people would, would, would practice this more. Like it's, it's so been captured by a certain type of Christian who for lots and lots of reasons, we don't want to have anything to do with. Um, but I would, hate, I would hate to abandon that gift just to those people. Um, so it's a bit like saying, well, I don't want to hug my kids because I once met some ridiculous people that hugged their kids too much and they were, their politics were awful. I'm like, well, no, hugging your kids is really good. Uh, so I, I don't want to stop prophet, prophecy just because capital P self-styled prophets are, are morons. I don't want to give up prof prophecy altogether. So it's really good when you're praying for somebody, instead of just going straight into platitudes and, oh Lord, we bless this person. Pause for a bit and ask the Holy Spirit, what, what do I, what does this person in front of me need to hear right now? What Bible character do they need to hear? Is there a word they need to know? Is there a, a period of history that you want them to, in their lives that you want to remind them of? Like you just you ask the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will tell you something. And then you get to gently say to that person you're praying for, I was praying for you and I feel like you need to know about this character in the Bible. Or I, I wonder whether this Psalm is meaningful to you. And then you read it out to them or whatever it is. And it's just so much better than rattling off a shopping list of prayer requests. <laughs> I feel compelled to even to tell you that even though I know we're thousands of miles away and there's the pandemic and all kinds of stuff, but if I was, if I was next to you, I wouldn't say a word to you. I'd just give you a big giant hug, tell you that I love you. Cause I See? think sometimes it works too. That's, that's prophetic. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's pathetic. I love it. It's she also socio-political because you'd be breaking coronavirus lockdown rules. <laughs> oh, look at your wife out of the court. She's like, what is this clown doing? Where have you been? <laughs> Get away from my husband. Yeah, you can be prophetic without ever saying a word as well. When you sit with those who mourn or if you sit with the poor or if you sit with the brokenhearted, that's prophetic, even if you never say a word. Now, Stephen, I, I would say what you were, I, I totally agree with what you were saying. Uh, and my heart was aching because of the coronavirus stuff right now, because I, <laughs> I haven't sat, I mean, there's been some people I've been close with, but like, I just mm. can't pray for somebody like that anymore. So my, I kind of need a, a, a good word from, you know, a, I need a COVID uh, prophecy <laughs> to give me hope, you know, I, I, you know, that, that maybe we, that church will be restored, that, that our time together as God's people will be restored because it's, yeah, this kind of, this, this past year has kind of broken my heart. So I kind of need a, I need a good word from a prophet to come kind of speak up into the, into the, my laments, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, Chris, <laughs> I'm going to do what I just said. When you were talking, I was asking the Holy Spirit. We're going to record mm. this. And I, I was like, Holy Spirit, what does Chris need to know right now? He's, he's, he's suffering right now. And, I, and the image that popped into my mind, for what it's worth, was like of a thumbtack being put into a wall. And the idea that, and the idea I had in my mind was like a thumbtack, you might despise it because it's very little, but in fact, they're really hard to push into the wall. And once they're there, they're really hard to get out. And they can bear a lot of weight. And it was like being reminded of you, Chris, like uh, you are. It took some effort to get you there. Nobody's going to lodge, dislodge you. And you're bearing some really good weight right now. Like hang in there or stay there because other people are hanging on to you. And it's okay. 
you can do it. You can bear the weight. And it was almost like you were a thumbtack <laughs> and you're a way bigger. You're doing a way more valuable uh, and long suffering, long standing job than you think. That was what I came into my mind when you were talking. <laughs> That's exactly what I needed, Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Right. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, friends, I think this is a good place to stop because Chris needs to go off now and do a little prophetic prayer walk around his church or <laughs> whatever it is. And, My city. And Sean needs to needs to serve his family or give them a big hug if he can. So I'm going to leave us uh, for now, but we will be back again to talk about the next installment of Followers of the Way, which I believe is all about, does God appoint leaders? So see you next week for the next discussion. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10ththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.